Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Good evening. Welcome to the December 12, 2015 edition of Daily Talk. Researcher 135's community call here on www.talkshoe.com. Tonight we're having a very interesting, very exciting return guest, Lawrence Sonato, a world traveler who has now visited some 95 countries. And he's written three books about his travels and adventures, the different people he's met, the different experiences he's had, uh, the different places he's been. And he'll be covering... uh, all of that tonight, as he did uh, some of it earlier when he appeared the first time back in July. And that's an excellent show for those of you who have not heard that show before and not familiar with Lawrence Sonato. I recommend you go back and it's recorded and archived here and listen to the July 11th episode, which is the first time Lawrence Sonato was my guest. Since then, he's visited many more countries. And I understand he has more trips uh, planned in the future. His most recent book is titled True North 3. And uh, he'll be talking a little about it tonight as well and explaining to us the definition of True North. That book, True North 3, as well as his his other books, uh, are available on Amazon. Some of the countries that he's visited in the past, of course, include Easter Island, Antarctica, the Machu Picchu. He uh, attended a Mardi Gras in Brazil, and he'll be talking a little about some of all of that tonight. I'm also going to follow up with him on some of the interesting cases that he dealt with in the the first show that he was on. Uh, There was a, a young, blind Ethiopian girl. He was living in a a very precarious makeshift dwelling that she constructed out of plastic and old umbrellas and what have you. And and the place where she had positioned herself was uh, just below a kind of a waste dump. And there was this very toxic water that was constantly coming down toward her. He rescued her from that, got her into a much safer and better living situation and environment. And we're going to follow up with him on her. Also, I'll be asking him about the Rwandan uh, orphans, which he encountered, 60 of them in Rwanda. And he, uh, along with uh, some people affiliated with a a church group there, I believe it was, uh, is involved in the uh, support and the help of these orphans, uh, basically the, the adoption of these orphans. He's providing help to them. We'll also talk to him a little about the American businessman in a a third world country uh, who fell afoul of some corrupt uh, and evil government officials there uh, who, along with their cronies, decided to seize his uh, 
business operation and actually incarcerated him, uh, put him in jail for some 20 days, seized his bank account, seized uh, his property, and he basically uh, emerged from jail virtually penniless and and had to um, seek help from outside uh, just to get money to operate on. And whenever uh, he encountered Lawrence Sonato, he explained the dire situation he was in, and Lawrence was able to facilitate a rescue of that gentleman as well. And um, Lawrence will uh, follow up with us on on that case as well. Imagine, if you will, what it would be like to travel to 95 different countries. That's absolutely amazing. It's, It's a big world out there. Every country's a little different socially and culturally and economically. Conditions uh, vary widely worldwide uh, with many, many, many countries uh, not approaching the level of uh, comfortable lifestyle that we're used to as Americans. And one of the things that he encountered in so many countries was the the dire poverty and, and the absolute lack of modern Facilities and conveniences and technologies that uh, that we're uh, we're so used to. And I see my caller from Illinois has a question. Sherry? Yes, Rich. Uh, yes. Hi, Rich. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you this evening? I'm fine. I was great. just curious. I know you were just talking about that uh, he came out of uh, the uh, jail or prison, whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. That and he was virtually penniless. I was just wondering before that, you know, it's not it's not cheap to travel to other countries, and I was wondering how he financed his trips. Well, that may be one of the things that, that Lawrence will go into. I'm sure some of it comes from the uh, success of, of the first two books, which have been out for some time now, True North 1 and True North 2. Mm-hmm. But I believe there must be uh, other means, too, that he is... Uh, utilized in terms of his world travel. We didn't get into that a lot in the first show, uh, but, you know, certainly perhaps if you would like to uh, elaborate on that, that would be very interesting because I agree, you know, airline flights, just even within the United States, have gone up astronomically over the past decade. And and I can just imagine uh, what the cost of flying worldwide to various countries must be. Uh, that must be an incredible expense. Uh, of course, there are uh, ins and outs. You know, there's different ways of getting discounts. There's different ways of traveling on um, the cheap, as they say. There used to be a series of books out many years ago, you know, how to visit South America on $15 a day or something like that. And I think that series was out back in the 70s. And now, of course, due to world economy and inflation, that figure would probably be (laughs) considerably larger. But at one time, it was possible to visit different places. And if you knew what you were doing, get around and and basically have a good time without spending a fortune. That's probably much, much more difficult these days. I do know that uh, some of his travels have taken place probably by boat or ship, if I recall correctly, from the first show. And and one of the things he's encountered when he gets into certain countries is, is transportation. Eastern Central Washington, is that you, Lawrence Sonato? It is. Hi, Rich. Welcome to the show. How are you this evening? Moshing, as they say. Well, that's Absolutely fantastic. Excellent. I'm actually out in Leavenworth, 
Washington, which is a awesome community that's kind of got a Bavarian theme to it on the east side of the mountains, and it's a really, really fun place. There's probably, uh, in, a, in a city of 2,000, there's probably 100,000 people here from out of town. They're here for the Christmas lighting ceremony. It's fabulous. Wow. I bet you're thoroughly enjoying every minute of that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Warren the locals are very unfriendly, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah, they're, so, they're no- notoriously barbaric and pirate-like, but uh, I, I managed to get by anyway. Well, good. That's good to hear. So tell me, since you were on uh, back in July on the July 11th show, you visited now up to 95 countries. Uh, tell me, how early did you get bitten by the travel bug? Oh, my God. Uh, I don't know how early I was bit, but my parents took me to Mexico when I was four. And um, I remember going to, for example, Mexico City and seeing the murals on the university there, the University of Mexico City, and how vivid they were. And I actually went to college, Pomona College in Claremont, California, and there was a very famous mural there by one of the artists who had done the the murals in Mexico City. Uh, sadly, I forget his name. Um, but I remember that, and I remember the uh, grinning gargoyles at the Pyramid of the Sun and the Pyramid of the Moon, uh, just mm-hmm. outside Mexico City, which are world famous. Incidentally, yeah. those two pyramids are the exact same size in their base as the pyramids in Giza, in the Giza Plateau in Egypt. Now, what do you think that the likelihood of that is? you think that's a coincidence? Absolutely not. I'd say there has to be some connection there's, between There's got to be some connection, and that's the, the beauty of trying to discover and doing research and doing travel is trying to figure out what that connection is, how, how they had that, that uh, connection. In, in fact, have you ever heard of the 100 monkeys theory? A little bit, but go ahead and elaborate on it I for can, our listeners. I can I can mention it briefly. The hundred monkeys theory is that you've got a bunch of islands, and these, mm-hmm. these monkeys uh, are incommunicado in the fact that they are separated by a body of water, the sea. And mm-hmm. yet, when any of the monkeys on a particular island acquire a particular skill, and once they get to the hundredth monkey acquiring that skill, that um, skill transfers telepathically to the next island and the next group of monkeys and so forth until a hundred of them have connected and they have acquired that skill. And then from that point on, it spreads island to island to island. So it makes you wonder, I wonder if there's the hundred humans theory. Right. That that talent spreads from Egypt to Mexico, but without anybody traveling directly uh, 4,500 years ago from Egypt to Mexico. Though uh, Contiki explores that theory, I believe, by Thor Heyerdahl. Are you familiar with that? Yes, yes. Uh, he, he's He's got a theory that's very close to that, that it, it's, it's the same thing about telepathic transfer. Amazing. So well, one, one of the other things in Mexico when I was, when I was four that I, I remember as if it happened yesterday is the cliff divers at Acapulco. These uh-huh. guys dive from about 112 feet. And they're diving into 12 feet of water, and they have to time the incoming waves or tidal uh, surge when it comes in because they, when they hit, they have to curve off immediately to avoid hitting the bottom. And I remember it, 
all these years later, watching these divers with the sunset behind them and being silhouetted against the sun and then hitting the water. And when they hit, there's hardly any ripple at all. And I, I don't know how they do it, but that has stuck with me. So that, that's where my travel bug began. And then it you got accentuated on a semester abroad program. Touching back briefly on the 100th monkey, I should mention that uh, on the human level, Carl Jung's collective unconscious bears certain similarity to that. What, yeah, which part it, of Jung's of Jung's philosophy are you talking about? Collective unconscious is the idea that we all have shared memory of of ancestral memory, stuff that that our ancestors did perhaps hundreds or thousands of years ago. That that's sort of shall we say genetically passed on that it's there in our subconscious mind, and I certainly buy into that. I think Carl Jung was onto something. I I think that happens on an individual level also. I think that uh, our collective memory. If you believe in reincarnation, like I do, mm-hmm. that you pass on, and I know that you do as well, and a lot of our, our friends that we share in common, um, that collective memory from lifetime to lifetime creates a thread, a, a uh, commonality that you have from lifetime to lifetime. In each lifetime, we are a personality, but there's a collective thread that we have in common from lifetime to lifetime. And that collective memory that you speak of that Jung refers to is part of that. It's yeah. something you can tap into. That's the beautiful part. Absolutely. Well, it's, what's your goal for how many countries and why? Do you have a particular number or could you tell us a little about that? Well, the, the number, Rich, is not precise, but there's 196 official countries in the United Nations. And my goal is to hit all of them. And then there's some unofficial countries that are uh, territorial disputes or they're kind of right next to one country but really belong to another, and so they're they're cat-scratching about who really owns this, this country. And, and situations like Taiwan which has been politically displaced by China. Taiwan naturally should be a member of the United Nations, but because China has so much throw weight, China, uh, Taiwan will never be allowed to be a, a part of the United Nations. They'll always be vetoed by China. And so you know, that, that's a country, and I visited that, but it's not an official UN member nation. So my goal is to reach all 196 and as many of the misfits uh, that I can on top of that. I'm halfway home, by the way. I'm, I'm, I've been to 95, so ah. I'm halfway there. <clears throat> halfway there. Well, what have been your favorites to date and why? Uh, it's a very good question. Um, that could take up an entire program in itself, but I'll, I'll try to make this brief. I had my semester abroad program in Great Britain, and that basically involved uh, Whitehall in London, but I also went to uh, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. So my my first foray, really, aside from Mexico and Canada, I got a chance to go to five countries. And um, so I really learned to like the Lakes District uh, in England. And then later on, um, some of my favorites were uh, Tuscany in Italy and the Dordogne Valley in France, which was the dividing line essentially between the English part of France at the time of Henry V 
when England dominated the northern part of France and the, the southern part of France. And the, the really interesting part about that, the Dordogne River, there's castles of different styles that lined on either side of the river. And these guys would be fighting, the French and English soldiers would be fighting each other during the day, but at night they would get together and they would drink and they would dine and they would basically carouse together and then about 10 minutes before sunrise, the warning was essentially, get your ass back in the rowboat. You've got 10 minutes, and we start firing on you again. <laughs> so it, was, it, it made for a really interesting 12 hours were enemies and 12 hours were buddies sort of scenario. Um, and then beyond that, uh, the white cliff towns in Spain are spectacular, and I, I can describe that at, at greater length later. The Sacred Valley of the Incas in Peru, uh, Mongolia, is just because it's so different and so isolated. And when I went into Mongolia, I had no idea to, uh, what to expect, and so I got to completely play it by the hoof and really, really appreciated being out on the Mongolian steppes and living in a yurt, for example. Um, North Korea. North Korea is a big charade. It is all set up to convince their own people that they have a high standard of living and that these rumors that they hear about their fellow countrymen starving are, are fabrications of their enemies, that it's not true. It is true. About 10% of their, their populace is starving. Um, but it's just a, a remarkable farce that has been fabricated in North Korea to try to compete with the South Koreans, which has obviously has a much better economy, much better standard of living, much better... Uh, much better acceptedness uh, throughout the world community. And they take turns competing with the United States, and they take turns competing with South Korea, but mainly with the United States, oddly enough. Um, and I can speak more in detail about that later also. Okay. And then I also loved Rwanda. Rwanda has been a remarkable case of recovery since their genocide 20 years ago, and, it, and it's truly a beautiful country. It's kind of a combination of Thailand and Hawaii and Costa Rica, and they have a day each month that's very democratic where everybody goes out and picks up trash, and that makes it a most unusual country for Africa because Africa is a pretty trashed place. People just don't care. They just they take th uh, you know paper wrappers and they throw it on the ground, and, and it blows around all over the place, and they, they really don't care. And you particularly see that at uh, public transport places, bus stops and, and restaurants and things like that. Well, Rwanda is an exception to that. And among those who picks up the trash is the president. He also spends one day a month walking around picking up trash. So they, they have quite a bit of esprit de corps and uh, camaraderie and a sense of being one, and that has been encouraged by their president, Paul Kagame, who was on the winning side finally at the end of the genocide in 1994, and it was his posture in, in an Abraham Lincoln sort of way that dictated, we are no longer Hutu, we are no longer Tutsi, we are Rwandans. There is no more tribal affiliation anymore. And he also made sure that they didn't have um, retribution trials where they, they imprisoned a lot of people or they executed a lot of people in revenge 
he just said, no, we're, we're, we're going to be Rwandans again, and we're not going to have revenge in the same way that Abraham Lincoln, uh, before his assassination, decided that in 1865 here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, my last favorite, I'd say, would be Israel. Israel is a beautiful, beautiful country, very smart people, um, very crafty, very intelligent, uh, very surrounded, of course, feeling a little bit uh, in some ways left out of the world community because the world has bought into this Palestinian victimhood. And if you have boots on the ground and you get a chance to see what's there, the Israelis desperately want to connect with the Palestinians to be friends, to be allies. The Israelis do as much as they can to cooperate, uh, to give the Palestinians agricultural opportunities, marketing opportunities. They get free advice. They will go in and help them with business startups. What happens is Fatah and the Palestinian Liberation Front and the other people come in and interfere, and they essentially say, what's in it for us? There's no riches to be grabbed here. There's no money. The Israelis aren't going to pay us. Um, there's no UN money that we can glean off the top. Therefore, we're not going to allow you to do this co-marketing opportunity with the Israelis. You have to go through a Arab broker, for example. Um, so there's a lot of things that are sabotaged that we don't hear about until you are there, boots on the ground, and you see the cooperative effort that is at least attempted by the Israelis. So that that's uh, I had I had I have a question. other favorites, but that's 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 the last all list for now. Yeah, it's uh, Terry in Illinois. Go ahead. Well, uh, you know they're trying to make things you know more difficult for people to I- enter our country, and I was just wondering, uh, do you find it difficult in in certain countries to enter there? Have you have you run up into any kind of opposition, or do you have trouble at say you know where they take your passport or it sounds like some of the countries that you go to, you know, can be very dangerous. Yes, I'm I'm six foot one and two hundred and five pounds, and I I don't feel like I'm going to be a natural target for uh, people trying to take advantage, like at cash machines, and in the darker areas of town late at night. Um, but most of the countries, it's fairly easy to get into. You can either get a a visa ahead of time or you can get a visa right there at the airport as you land, uh, or you can get in the the contiguous country the day before you arrive. So they, they generally make it pretty easy. The most difficult country that I had getting a visa on the, the trip that ended a year ago when I went to 36 countries in five months was India. And I really wanted to get into India rather badly because I was going to be right next door in Nepal and the Indians made it very difficult to get a visa, and they told me, well, you can fly from Seattle down to San Francisco. You can spend three days down there. We'll review your application. You know, so you incurred the flight expense, you incurred the hotel expense and all that, and they wouldn't guarantee me that they would give me a visa at the end. And I just went, oh, I'll get to India another time. It should be so much easier than that, and it generally is. It's not that difficult. Generally, what they want is bakshish. They want American dollars. So they're going to charge you. And they have a reciprocal agreement. If the U.S. makes it hard for their countrymen to get in here in the U.S., 
they're generally going to make it a little bit more difficult. But the American greenback always speaks louder than the restrictions most of the time. They want those dollars. North Korea is a prime example. That's true worldwide, isn't it, Lawrence? I'm sorry, Rich, say again, please. Uh, that's true worldwide, isn't it? The American dollar is, is highly coveted worldwide in virtually all Still, countries. Yeah, we keep hearing about how the, the Chinese yuan is going to be the the monetary choice of the international uh, monetary system. But in, in honesty, and you already know from our previous interview that I tend to speak very plainly, is nobody trusts the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, they still trust America and the American dollar because they know that, that we are out to spread capitalism. We're not to spread our own particular brand of capitalism, for example. We'll do business with almost anybody, including our former enemies in, in uh, you know, Vietnam and, and uh, China and so forth. And, and, you know, they don't have that level of familiarity or comfort yet with the Chinese. So I, I have to say, in all honesty, when I went to China, I found the Chinese to be very agreeable, very friendly, very warm people. And more than anything, um, they just want to be part of the world community. They don't really care about the uh, uh, political system that they have. In fact, the government was threatening to institute more propaganda and more uh, political training with people because <laughs> they weren't speaking the party line quite as much as they have. I wrote a, a chapter in my book entitled mm-hmm. Show Me the Money. Yeah. And uh, that that was uh, China. And that's modern-day China is people just want to be part of the world community and they want opportunities to make money. So when you get over there, they're very friendly, but you're going to get 65 times with let's do a deal together. What do you do? What, how can we form a business together? How can you get me involved in a business? Um, what ideas do you have for me to form a business? Very, very, very uh, material and, and uh, money-driven right now. Very entrepreneurial, absolutely. Very entrepreneurial, better word yet, yes. Well, I know I remember uh, probably back in the 80s, they said that uh, you know a person from the United States could go over to China and if they had a suitcase full of, uh, like, say, Wrangler or Levi blue jeans, you could sell them for two hundred dollars a piece over there. Over here, that they were Russia. probably selling for twenty. Now, I'd now, always heard now, it was China. Is this, is this is this Terry again? Yeah, yeah, Terry. That was Russia. China didn't have that level of income at that time in nineteen eighty. Really? They, they do now. They're rapidly approaching the number of of millionaires and billionaires that the United States has. But in 1980, um, the deal was you could go over to Russia, and I have a a sister-in-law who actually did that. When she got married to my brother, she came over here, and my brother lives in Moscow, and she came over here and loaded up with uh, Mary Kay products and uh, (laughs) Donna Karen New York products and shoes and jeans and stuff like that, went back to Moscow and just made bank with that. Mm-hmm. But, but the Russians had the disposable income. The Chinese did not have the disposable income until the last 15 years or so. Well, I'd like to follow up with you on something we discussed uh, in the in the first show that you were on. And, and this is touching back on Rwanda that we talked about earlier. How about the 60 orphans in Rwanda? Uh, what's the latest with them, and how can listeners donate? Can you tell us a little about them? 
Oh, God, Rich, thank you. Thank you. Bless you for asking. Um, I had a, a chance bus encounter uh, in Rwanda um, with a pastor, and he invited me to stay over at, at his compound. And when I was there, uh, he then introduced me to some orphans that he had been taking care of and his, his fellow church members. And these kids were sleeping on the floor, on dirt floor. And they had no blankets. They had no pillows. They had no games. They had no toys. They were eating every third day. Um, they had one set of clothes. Some of them had shoes. And it really touched my heart. And I'm I'm not a uh, prior to that trip. I'm not what you would call a sob sister. I'm not one of those that would have been. Uh, God, let's let's round up the troops and get as much money as we can for this. But when you see it in person, it's completely different. It's just completely different. It's so sad to see these kids huddled against each other for warmth on dirt. And so when I left, I gave them a certain amount of money for some shoes and to get solar lights, because their day ended at 5 o'clock when it got dark. And uh, so they had lights where they could carry on to in, into the dark and tell stories with each other, and I got them a chalkboard so that they could begin lessons in whatever they wanted lessons in. I uh, got them some clothes and then money for food and also a sewing machine so they could repair their clothes and, and perhaps do some entrepreneurial things. And it just went on from there, and Facebook friends started chipping in. And the next go-round is we got uh, doors and windows for the essential – their their church is kind of like a cattle pen more than anything. So we got doors and windows so that they could lock out the mosquitoes and the cold and the rain. And then the next uh, fundraising trip on, on Facebook and with, with friends and acquaintances and generous people who call in was to get them beds. So we got them uh, – 12 beds for the primary kids that they take care of and are there all the time. And that included mattresses and blankets and pillows. And then um, there have been some, uh, been contributing monthly for food because they're, they're always short on food. They just don't have the same economics over there, and the government doesn't chip in in the way that the government will chip in for orphans in the United States. The government just either does not have the wherewithal or doesn't feel the obligation to pitch in in the same way. And please keep in mind that there are disproportionately many more orphans in Rwanda because of the genocide uh -huh. and because of the AIDS epidemic that has resulted uh, in the last 25 years. And so you'll get parents who will have children and then the parents will die of AIDS and the children be afflicted with AIDS, but they manage to survive. And so there's lots and lots of orphans. And the, they're just not the structure to take care of them. And so these poor kids will wander around at night. And this orphanage essentially started with these kids taking themselves into this church for the night and just having a place to be out of the rain and away from predators. So the, the latest project is to try to get them um, – a new orphanage because the, the orphanage they have is essentially a cattle pen with a metal roof and they're being rented and the landlord is taking advantage of them. He, he's continually giving them um, uh, rent 
increases or saying, well, I hadn't really intended this to be used as an orphanage. I can put it to a higher and better use and get more money, and so you guys need to be out. And they, they're, they're kind of doing that game. And so it'll cost somewhere between thirty and $50,000 to get a building built for them. And that, that's the next project is to get... Is there a, a crowdsourcing fund set up? Do you have a GoFundMe that people can go to or, or, or a PayPal address that people can send to for these orphans? Uh, Rich, I, I did earlier. I don't now. I'm going to form it shortly. I've, I've been very, very busy uh, writing the book and then trying to promote the book, but uh, I'm going to form one. For right now, donations can be made via PayPal, and it'll be to the Freestyle World Traveler Benevolent Fund. And I, I think the way to get into that via uh, that might be able to be input into PayPal, but I think the easiest way is just um, via email. If I remember how money is sent via PayPal, and it's sent to right. email. Right, it can be done with email, yes. Yeah, and so it would be to my email, um, or for example, and I'll give that in just a second, or somebody could email me directly and just say, how, how can I send you a check? How can I make a donation? And... Um, so the email address to reach me directly or to send money via PayPal would be sonato the fifth at yahoo.com. And I'll spell that out. So that's my last name, C-E-N-O-T-T-O, -T -T then the, T-H-E, the number five, and then T-H at yahoo.com, sonato the fifth at yahoo.com and contributions um, go completely to the orphans. There is no admin expense. There is no fundraising expense. There is no commissions. There is no uh, payment to anybody, and certainly not to me. And basically, all the money that is, is paid gets augmented by me, and I add to it and pay all the fees for that money to be sent to Rwanda via Western Union, for example. So people don't have to worry. if it, This isn't like the American Red Cross, where 80%, 90% of the donation goes into admin and salaries, and 10% goes to projects in the U.S. This is 100% plus of the money goes to the orphans. Well, that's so great. That's great. People can be rest assured that there there is no siphoning, that it, it's all going to a very good cause. And Lawrence, also, I'd also, uh, sure. while we're discussing this, I'd like to touch upon your blog. Your blog is called Freestyle World Traveler at uh, blogspot.com, if I recall correctly. Exactly, Rich. Can you tell us a little about the pros and cons of traveling freestyle? Uh, yeah, and, and Actually, that's a delightful question. Uh, that's that's one that I love talking about. The pros and cons of traveling freestyle, um, that is my style. Freestyle means you basically have no set plan. doesn't mean you don't do a lot of research. You don't have an idea of where you want to go, but it means it's not set in stone, and you're more likely to listen to the locals. Right. Um, for example, um, this this last trip, I went to 36 countries in five months. Well, it started off going to like six or seven countries in what was going to be maybe a month. 
uh-huh. and the trip just morphed, and it morphed by listening to locals and by adding on to, um, adding on to the project, adding on to the trip. Well, um, you pointed out in the last pre- show that uh, locals are always your best source for special sites. All, always, not only special sites, but also where to where to eat and where to stay. I, I stay in hostels, for example. I don't like staying in hotels. I don't think interesting people stay at hotels. Interesting people tend to stay in hostels. Hostels mm-hmm. also have music pits, and they got um, little food preparation areas, and they they have uh, people from all over the world who are staying there and are anxious to share uh, travel stories with you, anxious to trade war stories, whereas my experience with hotels is a lot of times people want to be isolated, uh, shut in, and do their work on their computer, and they really don't want to cross paths with a stranger sitting across the table from them trading war stories over dinner. So back back to freestyle. Freestyle is uh, essentially lining up your airline segments based on research that you've done, and you figure out for this set of countries, here's all the things that I want to see, and then you figure out a timeline. How much time will this take? And you never know what routing you're going to go. The routing is really dependent upon uh, you know, good fortune and what people you meet on the path and all those things. But you know, okay, this, this period from this country to this country will take two weeks. So you set your airline segments up two weeks plus one day apart. And then you just travel. And it could by, be by uh, camel. It could be by donkey. It could be by uh, boat. It could be by river cruiser. It uh, could be by plane. You just never know. I, I had 10,000 miles on the ground in Africa alone on this latest trip. And that was a lot of 15 passenger vans that in reality ended up being 35 passenger vans because they packed the the kids in there and they packed the chickens and the the goats and <laughs> and the the driver also pays a fine to the local police to be able to violate their limit. It's a, it's a big joke. You're driving down the road and about 2 miles after they start they pull off to the side of the road. Everybody in the van starts laughing. And they know that they're pulling off to pay off the cop. And then the cop will walk up with a new sticker saying, your new uh, capacity for this vehicle is 35 now instead of 17. And uh, that, that happens over and over and over in Africa. The other thing that they do, incidentally, is they don't start at a designated time. You may show up at 8 o'clock. But unless that van is full, you may not leave till 11 or 12. So you could be sitting there for four hours cooling your heels until it, it fills up, and then you take off. And any any uh, public conveyance that takes off at a regular scheduled time is very, very rare. I only ran into that in Burundi and Rwanda. The rest of the countries, it was it was only when it was full. So free, freestyle, the, the shortcomings are you don't know when you're going to leave sometimes, and that museum that you had planned to visit in the afternoon, mm-hmm. when you knew it was a three-hour trip, it wasn't a three-hour trip. It was a nine-hour trip. That's mm-hmm. one of the shortcomings. The beautiful part of it is you get to see things that you had never counted on that are not in the guidebooks that the locals told you about 
that you saw and you have some absolutely amazing conversations with people riding on chicken buses from that are not only world travelers themselves but also locals who are, who will tell you about their life and a lot of that works its way into my books Lawrence, if you were to that's a short answer Lawrence, if you were to attempt to define it, what would you say is the driver for so much boots on the ground? Um, insatiable curiosity would be the first thing. Um, you know, there's some people that wanted to be doctors and lawyers and, and you know, get their Ph.D., and that's kind of where their their intellectual drive was satisfied. And that part just never hit me. Um my drive came from wanting to understand how and why things work. And there's probably no better driver, Rich, for understanding how and why things work than to seeing it for yourself in various countries. We know how and why things work in the United States. But, you know, why is Turkey our ally and 70, 100 years ago they were not our ally? Why is Israel our ally? Why is Egypt our ally but our enemy 30 years ago? Why is Vietnam our friend now but our enemy 60 years ago? Um, you know, you want to see those things for yourself, and you want to see the history. Um, I was absolutely fascinated in North Korea, for example, which should be a friend of ours. But because of the ideological connections with China and Russia and Cold War politics, and the poverty that is in North Korea and the fact that you have a cabal of leaders that would not be respected or accepted anywhere else in the world but have managed to create their own little fiefdom in this country, they are not going to let go of that anytime soon. And these are people who should naturally be allied with their cousins and brothers and so forth to the south but it's not it's not going to happen because of politics and because this one group has got the Kim dynasty has has got a stranglehold on them and I didn't really expect the wall to fall in the Soviet Union as fast as it did in 70 years I honestly think that it's going to take a lot longer than that in North Korea because the level of brainwashing is so high the everyday omnipresent pressure on the population, listening to martial music, um, huge statues of the Kims everywhere, uh, wall plaques, books that they supposedly wrote, inspirational books that were ghostwritten, that were not written by them at all, that remind people of the proletariat spirit and the, the spirit of sacrifice and so forth. Well, I, I guarantee you, 10% of their population is starving, but there is no sacrifice on the part of party members or the Kim family. They're they're eating quite well. Thank you very much. Lawrence, while we're exploring that uh, theme of international politics, and I'd like to ask you what your thoughts are on, on Syria, on, on ISIS, on, on the terrorist attack in, in Paris, France, uh, on, on what's going on now with the uh, the alliance between Russia, France, and the United States to go after ISIS. What observations or comments do you have about that? All right. This this is 
from what I know of our listing office, this is not going to be a popular answer. Uh, okay. You already know me for what I am, and it, it's going to be a straight shot. Okay. Um, Vladimir Putin is earning respect in a way that he would never be able to otherwise, but for the vacuum of leadership created by the United States. We have a president who is not a leader. I voted for him. I raised money for him. I uh, was a delegate for him in uh, local politics in Washington, but he misled me. He's not who he pretended to be. He is, in fact, a Manchurian candidate. We don't know what he represents or who he is. Most of his background has been redacted and pulled out where we cannot access his educational records or anything else. It's awfully damn strange. He has not done a single thing whatsoever to stand up in the fight against Islamic extremism. And so it's created this vacuum. Even President Sisi of Egypt has stood up and been more oppositional to the Islamic Brotherhood and to Islamic extremism than President Obama has. Vladimir Putin is a hero now internationally and earning respect in a way that he would never be able to obtain, but for the fact that he stepped into a vacuum and, and we won't. And he is doing something about ISIS. ISIS rich needs to be eradicated. Mm-hmm. That is the very definition of original evil in the same way that uh, Adolf Hitler's brand of national socialism and Nazism was from 1933 on. Um, long before uh, the advent of war in 1939 on the European continent, um, it started well before then. And mm-hmm. if anybody had stood up to Adolf Hitler at the time, Hitler himself acknowledged he would have he would have been stopped they would have been satisfied with much less. They would have confined their activities to Germany. But nobody ever stood in the way. Well, at least Vladimir Putin is standing in the way. Obama is not standing in the way. He won't even call it what it is. He keeps trying to call it just uh, dispossessed individuals or, or some horse-trapped, clap-trapped nonsense like that. And mm-hmm. it's not. You, you have to stand in the face of evil. One of the people that I admire most throughout history was Winston Churchill. And he spent years in the wilderness in in British politics um, warning about the rise of Nazism, for example. And his time came, and he came through. And I hope to high heaven that we have such a leader coming forth for us in the United States because we don't have a leader now. We have a pathetic excuse of an elected individual who is not fulfilling any of the promises and is in fact giving away our national borders and doing nothing about ISIS and growing our debt at an unsustainable rate. So I have trouble expressing myself, as you can well see. <laughs> Lawrence, um, your books have the title True North in them. Can you tell us your definition of True North? Yes. Um True North is basically about finding yourself. Every Everybody has something that they were born with. You, you already know that I believe in reincarnation. Mm-hmm. We, we come to each life with a mission. 
And in, in that mission, it takes a lot of discovery to find out what it is sometimes or to rediscover what it is sometimes because there's a, there's a certain necessary amnesia which is placed between this life and the last life that you had. And if you knew everything that was supposed to happen to you in this, this life, you would just sit on your ass and do nothing because that particular person who is going to solve everything for you is going to come along in a couple of years, and so you can just skate, right? Mm-hmm. You have to have a certain amount of amnesia so that you will continue to be active. You will continue to be moving forward. You will continue to be proactive and uh, attempting to find yourself um, before that person or that event comes along. And so, to me, I'll read it out to you this way as it comes from the book, Rich. True North is our destiny. It means not only seeking your intended direction in life, but having the courage to follow both your instincts and your heart in getting there. It means trusting to your internal compass, no matter the wayward winds of personal doubt, peer pressure, family fears, public opinion, or economic necessity in the search for your most genuine self. It means both sensing and then pursuing the path of your highest calling, and it is the most difficult path of all. So basically it means you find your own path. You avoid peer pressure. You don't follow for uh, you know the old joke about the, the Jewish parents saying to their son, you've got to be a doctor or a lawyer. You don't have any other choice. Um, you know, maybe he wants to be a theater director. Um, maybe she wants to be a rock star. You have to find that path on your own. You have to avoid the peer pressure. You have to avoid other people's expectations. You have to avoid or discard other people's opinions. You can listen, but you can't be controlled by them. And when you're able to do those things, when you're able to recognize what individual unique path was set out for you, then you found your true north. Tying right in with this, I'd like to ask you, if you know the purpose for your travels, the sole purpose work, and is it a larger than a single life's work type mission? Oh, boy, that, uh, that hmm. That's almost controversial. I'm going to go out on a limb here a little bit. I, I know uh, of a number of my previous lifetimes, and I'm, I'm very lucky in that manner. And there's, there's a process by which most anybody can do it if they're, if they're so willing. It's not easy. It's, n- it's never an easy road, but there's a process by which you can find out about your mission and your thread from lifetime to lifetime. Um, what I know about mine and part of my drive for traveling so much and not just being in a country, but seeing a country well, seeing as much of it as I possibly can. And I, I don't, when I travel, I don't spend a lot of beach days. I, I don't get many rest days. And um, I get very little sleep. I sleep on the buses and stuff when I can, but I'm, I'm a dynamo. I'm seeing everything that I can. And part of it is to uh, just learn everything that you can. And what I know about my, my past lives is um, when people are planning their next life, they have to decide who's your family going to be. 
Who's going to be the actors that are in your life? What bit roles are they going to play? What lessons are you here to learn the next go-round? Where are you going to live? And without going into a long dissertation on it, I will just say that part of my job is to help people establish, because of my travels and my familiarity with travel in this lifetime and in other lifetimes, part of my job is to help people make decisions on where they are going to spend, where they're going to be located in their next life. Does that make sense? Fascinating. In your own life, uh, you come from a family of writers. Yes. Could you tell us a little about that? Well, my my mother and father both worked for newspapers. Uh, my dad was both a, a editor and a reporter. He was in uh, radio and TV for many, many, many years. My mother was a reporter. I was a reporter. I was the sports editor of a county paper when I was still in high school. Um, and then as a Kodak All-American quarterback in college, uh, I understand you were a sportscaster as well. Yes, yes, since. Um, not not during college while, while I was playing, but uh, I used my, my sports expertise to do broadcasting later and Comcast On Demand uh, and the Seattle area market, for example. Uh-huh. Um, I still keep my, my foot in it now and then doing some broadcasting, not as, not as much as before. Um, but the, the writing comes naturally. I, I have a deep uh, desire to express myself. And I was very, very lucky, Rich, in that my parents never discouraged me from doing that. My, my parents never said to me, you can't do this. My parents always said to me, what do you want to do and how can we help? Oh, that's and great. So that's I was great. Incredibly blessed in that way. And I, I'm not a religious man, so I'm not trying to throw out religious terms. But th- those are universal terms that are that are acknowledged worldwide. When people understand a blessing, uh, blessing is a blessing. And I I was deeply blessed by having parents who didn't say no to me. Right. And right. And didn't say you can't. And you know that that's huge to a kid when you're encouraged or you're said the world is your oyster, or you want to invent that machine, go ahead, even though they know that that machine is not going to work, that that's a pipe dream. When your parents and grandparents still tell you, yeah, go ahead and make that. We, we got full faith in you. That, that's huge compared to somebody who's, who's being told you can't. You'll never mm-hmm. mount anything. You won't. It won't work. I never got you chose, you chose very good parents. Yes. And it's interesting that you say that because I know you and I believe the same thing, but we do choose uh, ahead of time before we reincarnate. We do choose our family, our principal players, our uh, uh, you know those those players in our life that move us forward. So, for example, with me, my parents were huge. My grandmother was the biggest spiritual influence in my life. My fifth grade teacher. Um, I had her for one year, but I visited her for years afterward. She died about two years ago. She was a huge spiritual influence in my life. She was another one of those positives that just kept saying, you can do anything, I believe in you. And as a consequence, uh, certain things came up for me because there was no roadblocks. 
there was no negative there sitting in the way so that I, I could be an All-American quarterback. Um, mm-hmm. I could travel the world. I could write books. Uh, I could do a lot of things. Um, I remember one of my greatest thrills was for years um, from the time I first started watching football at about age nine until I went away to college watching NFL football with my dad, and we would break down every play and Uh go over why it worked and why it didn't work. And he was a broadcaster, and he had done uh, UCLA games and uh, Santa Barbara City College and and Santa Barbara uh, UCSB uh, games. Mm -hmm. We would go over these these plays in basketball and in football particularly just constantly. Uh And it – so when I got into college, I had an idea of what I wanted to do, no matter what the coach was going to tell me the offense was. And uh, the very first game that I called my own plays, because uh, his plays weren't working, and I started calling my own plays by audibling, and the very first play game that I called my own plays, we set an NCAA Division three record for total offense in one game. And Congratulations. And I knew that all those, those sessions with my dad sitting around the TV – which were so prized by me, and it, it, believe me, it it makes me misty-eyed to think about how much I would love to do something like that with him right now. He mm-hmm. didn't have three years ago, but it, it would it would I'd, I'd give the world to be able to have those Sundays back with him right now. I had a great relationship with my dad. Very lucky. That is fantastic. You have recommended that travelers create a travel blog. What are what are some tips that you can give someone on uh, creating a travel blog? I know that your blog has been very important in the writing of your book series, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, mine has been important because when you travel at the pace that I do and you see as much and do as much as I do, you can't recall it later. You have to write it at the time. So what I do is I blog it at first, and, and I don't go out drinking at night. I don't go out to the clubs, and I don't go out to the, the hot spots. I stay in in the, the computer, and I get my notes down. And mm-hmm. I I go to the bars, believe me, and I uh, go to the restaurants, but I don't stay out. I stay in on the computer mm-hmm. after you've had the, the good dinner and so forth and get those strange spellings and the – museum information and all the pamphlets and get as much of it as I can down. And a lot of times I'll, I may be writing till 2, 3 in the morning and you have a 5.30 wake up to get a 7.30 plane. Uh, but you have to do that. It's, it's incredibly important to get it extemporaneously and to get the correct spellings and to get your impressions. You can always add to it later. You can always pull some stuff off the Internet with regard to the history of South America or the history of you know this rebellion or that building or something like that, because the Internet is, is fantastic for that. But it's <laughs> incredibly important to get those notes down, to keep the notebook, to be writing in it all the time, take the photos, um, post the photos on Facebook with a with a caption, for example, that you can go back in and, and recall that later. But, to, God, to get those names down. And also to establish foreign contacts. I have friends all over the world now that I can call on that will help me with an understanding of, so, you know, what What do you think about what's going on in ISIS right now? I can I can get a perspective from Jordan, from Egypt, from Syria, from Turkey, 
uh, from Israel, and I, I don't have to count on just what's being spoon-fed to us in the United States. I, I can find out what locals in 10 different companies, countries are, are thinking, you know, and it helps develop my perspectives. Absolutely. That. So that, that's one recommendation with, with regard to a blog. But um, I'll, I'll think of some other things to go along. A, a very unique position that you have, to some extent, created for yourself to sort of have your finger on the pulse beat of uh, international politics and world events, and, and that must be a very gratifying position to be in to, to have access to these people who can give you these very perspectives. Yeah, I, I mean, sometimes I wish that I was the State Department, uh, you know, had a, a, a phone line to me where they could ask my opinion, but I, I think they want the people with the official degrees and the ones who have contributed a lot of money to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Uh, that, that's how our State Department works and has worked for a, a long time. Um, I don't know. Uh, they seem to cultivate the people who have got the international uh, studies or international degree relationships in multiple languages. I, I only speak Spanish and badly at that. Um, but I've got lots of miles on the ground. I've got lots of boots on the ground, as you say. Mm-hmm. And I've been mm-hmm. to a lot of places. And, you know, God, I would love to be pulled in or drawn in as a consultant, but that, that's not the way things work. They want, they want to make sure you've got party loyalty and, and various other things. Um, it's, it's not always the truth that they're after. They're, they're not always after veracity. Uh, more often than not, they're after predictability. They're after how, how can we bring this situation into a predictable circumstance? How can, how can we make this fit our political desires. Uh, it's a control kind of thing. It's a manipulative so kind we, of power. We run into, you know, periodic cyclic problems with countries because you have one party that it fits and then another party in power four years later, eight years later that it doesn't fit. You go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and you don't you don't particularly have uh, people there going, here's our interest and here's their interest. And somewhere in between, we can work it out where we don't have to have these cycles. We don't have to have these rebellions. We don't have to have these these uh, breakouts. And then, you know, somebody also with the guts um, to call it early, somebody with the guts like Winston Churchill to just say, this Nazism has got to be beaten down now, early and often. Well, we need somebody with the guts to say that now with... Uh, Islamic uh, extremism, and I don't I don't see that happening. Sadly enough, Lawrence, could you give us a timeline for your next trip? And I know Australia, New Zealand, Southeast Asia are on the uh, the itinerary. Tell us a little about the the upcoming trip. First, first of all, I don't know the the t- timing of it, Rich, because uh, it takes about thirty five thousand forty thousand dollars. I, I can generally do, when I'm loosely budgeting, um, about $750 per country and then perhaps, you know, the airfare uh, on top of that. But um, 
I've been to every continent, including Antarctica, except for Australia. So Australia will definitely be in the next go-round. And my plan is to get to the uh, World War II battle sites where the U.S. essentially island-hopped and pushed the Japanese back toward their mainland island, mm-hmm. um, the, the home islands, and yeah. uh, places like uh, you know Iwo Jima, Tarawa, Guadalcanal, well, there's mm-hmm. 15 of them. Yeah. I think about somewhere between 12 and 15 of them that have become independent island nations at the the UN now, which is in in line with my quest to get every official UN member nation. Then there's the um, nations that surround them. So, for example, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Laos, uh, Philippines, uh, Borneo, mm-hmm. New Guinea. Uh, the Sultanate of Brunei, um, Singapore, uh, Australia, of course, New Zealand, and French Polynesia. And the interesting part about that, I think it'll take about six months, and the interesting part about that trip will be, it'll be much more difficult logistically than any of the previous epic trips that I've taken. And that's because the the joke is on some of those places, you can't get there from here. Um, Uh Uh-huh. Meaning you can be right next, one island can be right next to another island, but because of political affiliation or racial differences or just the airlines or ship, shipping companies that are serving those particular islands, they may not be affiliated. So mm-hmm. they're not going to go from island to island. There's just not enough people uh, wanting to make that trip to make it worthwhile. So what you've got to do is go backwards or you can mm-hmm. go virtually beyond that island. You've got to fly beyond 2,000, 3,000 miles and then come back. Yeah. And so it, it makes the planning really difficult. You've got to schedule all of those islands and find out, okay, what are the days or the only days that airliners come in? Easter Island is, Easter island is an example. You know, it's isolated, yeah. completely out in the middle of the, the Pacific, most isolated uh, populated landmass in the, in the planet, and you can only get there on Sundays and Wednesdays, for example. Tell and us a little about there, your, your visit to Easter Island. I'd be very curious about that. Say that, say that again, please. Uh, tell us a little about your visit to Easter Island. I bet that was an experience. Tell us a little about it. That was absolutely incredible. That, that was four years ago when I went to Antarctica, every country in South America, and Easter Island. And Easter Island, along with... Uh, Machu Picchu was one of the highlights, and probably Easter Island more so because it's such a mystery. Machu Picchu, uh-huh. not not that much of a mystery. Um, they can do some archaeological work there that they can figure out more or less what happens. But Machu or Easter Island, you you just don't know. There's so many theories, and you know, are they the poster child for ecological disaster? That's the modern theory. Uh-huh. Too many people using their scarce resources for a single obsessive desire to create these statues to the point where they cut down all the trees or burned all the trees on the island and virtually at the end didn't have enough wood to even build boats to get off the island when they were down to about 100 in population. And so did they then become cannibals or not? I mean, it's, it's hard to tell. But that's one theory. Another guy comes in with a theory and says, no, 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 the rats came in and ate up all the trees, and there there was no cutting them down, and they didn't use the trees for rollers to get the statues from their carving place down to the sea. 
and you just there, there's no certainty because the the whole thing on Easter Island was about oral tradition. It wasn't they didn't leave any written tradition, or if they did, it's nothing that anybody can interpret yet. And a good portion the the women were not allowed to be educated. Only the the men could be in a position of being uh, quote unquote in the know. The records that they kept. And most of those men were captured in slave ships and sent to the mines in Peru. And when they finally returned, there was only 15 of them or so who survived that. Mm -hmm. And they came back, and so they really lost all of their history. And so, you know, what do these statues represent? We know them as ancestor worship. But beyond that, uh, how exactly did they get carved? Well, we, we think we know. We don't know exactly. We don't know how long it took. We don't know how long they got these statues liberated from the rock. And you can, you can see some of them that are still what they call in situ, in sight, partially carved out from the volcanic rock. Uh -huh. You don't know how they got them then and raised them up because some of them were the size of, and weight of locomotives. You don't know how they raised them up and got them miles down to the sea. There's just so many mysteries about Easter Island, and, it, and it's maddening in some ways, and it, it's curiosity-evoking in other ways, and it makes you want to stay there and read every single book and to dig a couple of these things up yourself. You're probably familiar then with Thor Heyerdahl's Aku Aku, which uh, explores theories yeah. about Easter Island, yes. Yes. His are some of the, the earlier theories, the theories that have gone way beyond that now, uh, mm -hmm. beyond Heyerdahl. Heyerdahl is one of the the older set of theories of what happened there. But the sad thing is there's just really no existing oral history um, that will explain what happened. Wow. An unsolved mystery of, of, the, of the distant past. You were in Antarctica during the winter, I understand. Uh yeah, it was it was winter up here in the northern hemisphere, but down there it would have been just the opposite. It would have been uh -huh. in essence their summer months. So it was ideal. I went in January of two thousand eleven. Uh huh. And uh it was an incredible place. I don't know that I would particularly want to go back unless I went to one of the big bases like McCurdo or Scott Base or something like that. But I uh -huh. went to the peninsula and island hopped and um, saw more penguins than I ever want to see again in my life. And the little buggers are interesting, but they stink to high heaven. And after you've had a couple of days worth of them, you just don't, don't really want to see any more penguins. As, as cute as they are, you just have your fill of them in pretty short order. Uh, one, of the, one of the highlights was uh, joining the Polar Bear Club. And I went uh, about as close as you can go to skinny dipping on, on Deception Island. It was zero degree water. And there was about seven of us that went in on a ship of 98. I was on a Russian icebreaker. And there was about seven of us that went in the water. And I want to tell you, it, it's not something that you wander into slowly. You just run as fast as you can and do a big belly flop and you get out there and it is so shocking and you're in that water and in about 20 seconds rich you can't feel your feet and you can't feel your legs it felt like 10,000 toothpicks sticking into my legs and then my feet could not feel the bottom and I started to stumble 
but uh, amazingly, my upper body felt like I was on a beach in the Caribbean. Wow. A real dichotomy between the two. But I spent, oh, I'm going to say, about three minutes in, in the water and then uh, came came out and I, just because I had to. I was, I was starting to get where I could not navigate. I could not walk along the, the gravelly bottom. I was so numb. In our remaining minutes, uh, we have a few minutes left. Tell, tell me a little about uh, Chichen Itza, and tell me a little about the shift to, to New Earth, to 5D, which Gwendolyn Rose will be talking about uh, on December 26th, oh. which show, yes. Gwendolyn Rose, when you talk to her, I think on the 26th, will be a much better source uh, talking about 5D. I, I really don't know about that all that much. There's there's so many different directions that you can follow with regard to spirituality. Mm-hmm. And mine tends to really be toward reincarnation because I believe that there is actually scientific evidence there for reincarnation as uh, evidenced by Dr. Michael Newton, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. including Journey of Souls, Destiny of Souls, and his concept of life between lives where we... Um, don't just go within a matter of seconds from one life to the next, but that we spend a significant amount of time in between lives, planning our next life, meeting with our bit players, you know, our soul group, those people who are going to be our parents and our brothers and the sisters and our teachers and our, our significant others in the next life. So she can speak much better to 5D um, than I can. But I can say that the experience on December 21st, 2012, yeah, Chichen Itza was a pretty incredible experience. There's people from all over the globe there at the pyramids. Yes. And uh, a lot of them were dressed up in their Mayan costumes. A lot of them were dressed in all white. Uh, there was quite a bit of kumbaya, uh, in other words, you know, hand-holding, circling, chanting, uh, praying, singing. Uh, that was a delightful experience. I got in on a press pass and so was more of an observer than a participant um, in that regard. And because of that, I, I, for about four days in there, I just got no, no sleep. I was going everywhere I could to every, every outing, every party. Well, I would imagine that. So, that I could, so I could write about it, and I could, I could say there, there's a festival crowd that goes throughout the planet. Well, and, and I would imagine that. The energy level was absolutely electric when you get that many people from so many different places that are all there with one mindset. That that was the beautiful part of it, is the fact that it was all positive. Mm-hmm. There was, there was, it wasn't political. There was nothing negative there. There was there was no differences of opinion. Uh, people might have had different theories on you know the Mayan calendar and uh-huh. is there an end of time is this is things really going to collapse you know tonight after midnight there's very few people who are there thought that they really looked at it as more of a shift a kind of a of a paradigm shift in in people's spirituality and i can say for however evidence is accumulated for that sort of thing i believe such a thing is taking place you can you can see it with people people are getting away from the old time religion People are getting away from dogma. People are getting away for my way, uh, or you die and go to hell. Um, you know that that's just not realistic anymore. Because if it were, 
virtually everybody on the planet would have to be dead because they're gonna, they're violating somebody else's religious credo. Every mm-hmm. every religion it seems like if you don't agree with me, you're gonna die and go to hell. So you know the Muslims say that and the Christians say that and the Hindus and the Buddhists and everybody says that. They're excluding virtually everybody else, and they themselves are excluded by the others. So, right. luckily, we're we're getting away from that. Fortunately, we are yeah. getting into a period of much more acceptance. Um, we see that in a in a generalized acceptance, for example, of the you know gay, lesbian, uh, bisexual, transgender lifestyle that would have been unimaginable 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, and kind of realizing that we are all souls, we all have soul energy, and in the way I look at it, Rich, is we are here to learn, to grow, to evolve, to fix our karma, and a huge, huge aspect of it is to help other people along on their journey also. And that's it. It doesn't get a lot more complicated than that. I think that pretty accurately sums it up. Um, Before we close out the show, I would like to invite you uh, to uh, something I'm planning up for the spring, an author's hour, a show that's going to invite published writers who have been daily talk guests in the past, people who've been on my show before, to come together for a panel discussion. I hope you'll return, along with Becky Butsko, Gwendolyn Rose, Lori Reagan, Linda Beauvais, uh, and all of us, of course, will be discussing tips on uh, writing and on publishing. And by then, you, your book, next book will be out. Can you tell us a little about the, the title and, and when it's going to be coming out, the next one? Well, the next one is, is actually out of order. It's, it's book two, and it, it does have to deal with all of Central America, Mexico, and uh, Cuba, while Cuba is still illegal. I, I kind of like that forbidden fruit aspect of going into Cuba. That was fun. Oh, yeah. We can do that on another show. I would love to cover that, as well as Buenos Aires and uh, Mardi Gras in Brazil. There's lots of different yeah. areas to cover. Yeah. We'll, we'll we'll do that, Rich, gladly, and I will be glad to be a, a part of that program. Absolutely. Well, Lawrence, I want to thank you very much for being my guest tonight, and I want to wish everyone listening and calling in a great evening, and good night. Thank you to Terry for calling in. Absolutely. I'll I'll be there for the Author's Summit. Ciao. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.